This is Left, Right, and Center, and Brother Metz informs me that today is the 100th edition, 100th edition of, of Left, Right, and Center. Feature. Well, I'm telling you. And Although they, none of us have actually been on all 100. That's indeed true. None of nobody's made the whole made no. the whole run. However, we've been here for the appropriate portions. Mm -hmm. I welcome uh, Bob Metz and Marion Boyd, who's the newest member of our Left, Right, and Center team, and. Uh, you're meeting with a lot of, I don't know what you're hearing out there, but you're meeting with a lot of approval on this program. Did you realize that? Do you know that? Are people telling you that? Because I'm hearing that. Well, I, I actually have been surprised at how many people have said they've heard me on the radio. Yeah. Uh, but I not just you heard a, you. You have a, you have a large uh, and loyal uh, listener. Not, not just there. heard you, but people that really like having you here. Not oh, that they well, don't like Jeff that's, but, that's and very nice Bob and the other guests that we have from time to time, but uh, I, just, I thought I'd pass that along well, in case you hadn't you heard that. thank you very much. And I like having Marion here too. Marion and I have been have been uh, friendly adversaries for a very long time, and <laughs> and uh, I think we've always enjoyed each other's company for Indeed. the most part, haven't we? Indeed. Today, being the one hundredth show, I don't have a particular issue, a burning issue today, and nor do either of my guests. But there is an issue that I I want to touch on today, if I may, and then we'll see where we go from there. Um, and it's it's kind of a troubling a troubling and troublesome issue. And the story I'm sure both of you heard this morning about the man who was sentenced to three years for molesting his daughter um, for a long period of time. And uh, we discussed in the earlier part of the show. We had a psychologist on to give us some of the some of the background as to why this happens and how it happens and what the results are and so on and so on. But and this definitely is not a left, right, and center kind of issue. But again, on occasion, I like to take advantage of the uh, the experience and and the intelligence of my guests to to, to m maybe bring that to bear on an issue and maybe enlighten all of us or give us some more things to think about. the The, the overriding impression this morning from the callers is that they view this as an abhorrent crime in our society. There's been any question about that? That this is just something that's it's beyond the pale. At the same time, there seems to be a reluctance in the law to, to deal with it to the extent of the public distaste for it, if that's a, a reasonable way to put it. Um, I think based on this morning's conversations with people, and certainly conversations I had before with other people, that if lynching were ever to come back, this would be at the top of the list of, of lynching crimes, I think, for many, many people. And I'm not suggesting that it should be. And yet, uh, you know, it would be right up there with, uh, well, you know, the most heinous crimes we can think of. And yet the law does not seem to reflect that public revulsion for it. The uh, uh, psychologist that we had on this morning, uh, Dr. Alvin Harvey Shapiro, has specialized in this area for a number of years. And his contention is that this is much more prevalent than, than we like to believe, and that... Uh, there is a certain reluctance in society, perhaps, to acknowledge that. And uh, I'm wondering whether or what you two think about that vis-a-vis -vis the, uh, the sentence here in this case, three years. He'll be out in 18 months if he's lucky. Um, as I said earlier, if the prisoners, other prisoners don't find out what he's in for. But he'll be out. And um, getting on, we assume, with his life. And yet, virtually without exception, all our callers this morning, and I'll bet you if we, st if we stop a hundred people on the street, 99 of them would agree with those callers and say, this guy's a mad dog, one of our people said. How do we get into a situation, Marianne, I'll start with you, do you think where we have a crime that is so abhorred in our society and yet the, the sanctions against it seem to be somewhat limited? Well, Jim, it may be abhorred, that, that may be true, 
but as someone who worked in the field of violence against women and children for you know most of my life I can tell you it's very hard to get people to to talk about this issue to acknowledge the extent of it Dr. Shapiro is quite right this is a crime that happens much more often than we would like to believe it doesn't always go to the extent uh, that the newspaper described in this particular mm. case um, and uh, but uh, there are many many people walking around men and women who are severely damaged because of the issues of breach of trust which is an important part of this not just the physical and sexual dislocation that happens for someone when they're uh, abused uh, by a family member but the whole issue of of trust of being able to have appropriate boundaries the long-term effects of this uh, frankly follow people for most of their lives unless they get effective therapy and have supports in their lives that help them to overcome it it's a very serious crime in terms of its cost because the cost to us is an undermining of the family unit obviously mm -hmm. it's uh, it's a uh, health cost uh, both in the mental health system and in the physical health system it's often a social service cost because many people who have been abused in this way uh, find themselves unable to uh, be productive in our society and in many cases of course we we see a huge cost in the criminal justice system uh, as uh, there are efforts to try and prosecute these cases when they're retrospective cases, which is usually the case mm -hmm. uh, with incest, I mean, occasionally another parent finds out and blows the whistle or another adult does. But in most cases, it's not until a person reaches the age of maturity and really understands what mature sexual relations are all about that they understand that they've been abused at all. And the complexity of it is great because in many cases, not in all cases, but in many cases, the child equates that sexual activity with appropriate loving behavior and then finds it very, very hard to adjust to the reality of the abuse that it is. Now, some children, of course, are, are physically abused. They're coerced in, mm -hmm. in, in very uh, difficult ways um, and, and do have an appreciation that this isn't uh, correct behavior. But in many cases, the victims of, of sexual abuse within the family, uh, because it's not talked about, because we don't really... Um, help our, our children to understand what appropriate mm -hmm. behavior is in the sexual realm may have the mistaken belief that this is this is an appropriate way to express love and the confusion that happens when you become an adult and you really understand what this is all about uh, is pretty devastating. Barbara, I want to ask for your thoughts on it too. Uh, do you see this dichotomy that, 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 that I do between the social opprobrium attached to this and, and the fact that this guy, I mean, and this uh, by all accounts appears to be a fairly heinous example of this, if you consider this to be heinous. Well, and, you seem to be asking, you know, why do we live in a society where the punishment so often does not seem to fit the crime? Um, gee, I can think of a, a myriad of crimes that no punishment would fit, not even lynching. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the ones that seems to bother me a lot is the whole concept of home invasion. I think that's something that, mm -hmm. that goes beyond even normal theft or, or anything like that. And, you know, I suppose as a civilized society, we decided some time ago that we have to put the reins on our, on our feelings of revenge and on our feelings of getting back at the perpetrator. Um, and, and again, I think maybe we've gone too far in some respects in terms of uh, not holding people responsible. The, the situation you describe here is extremely complex. Um, 
you've got the unwitting participation of a child for that many years who who has perhaps in her mind consented but society doesn't recognize that that form of consent because of the lack of knowledge and experience that, mm -hmm. that preceded the consent that's that's not true consent um, you have a a mother I understand who was aware of the situation who is in effect as far as I'm concerned an accomplice well I think in fact uh, she, she, she denies that she, she denied that she, she denies denied it okay I thought I heard she this morning that, that she was aware of it she denies that she did there was a contention that she that, 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 that she did know about it but she certainly denies that she knew about it but, but certainly the victim appears convinced that the mother knew yeah. yes and you know sometimes the denial comes down to fooling yourself because you you're f fear that you're going to lose something else and so that in effect is what denial is is denying something that you know mm -hmm. is otherwise um, but, but you just can't bring yourself to, to deal with it so you've got this whole mesh of all these individuals in in this thing sort of all participating and all it, it's not like a an out and out forced rape where someone actually uses physical coercion on someone but it is still force mm -hmm. by by definition by the fact that consent was not obtained mm -hmm. in in order for this act to in, in, in informed yes consent and and and, and, and of course you in our law a child of six, which is when this apparently began, mm -hmm. uh, is deemed by the law always to be incapable of consenting yes. to sexual yes, behavior. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Which only makes sense to anyone who has the experience, you mm -hmm. know. The lines are open. 643-1290, star-1290 on the Cantel. And our email, live email in the studio is on, too. It's jchapman at imessaging.net. Marion Boyd and Bob Metz with me on this 100th edition of Left, Right, and Center. Marion, let me ask you something. Because of the experience you've had in this area, our first caller this morning identified herself as being a survivor of a situation like this and went on to talk at some length and it was challenged later uh, although she wasn't there on the line but she was challenged later by a couple of callers because she had s talked about rebuilding the family and 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 putting putting this behind them and so on and so on a couple of our later callers one woman in particular was was very obviously very emotional about it said i don't she didn't understand how anybody could ever rebuild anything with with the father or the mother in a situation like this is that something that can happen? I mean, does it happen? Are there, is there any basis for creating a, shall we say, a second part of the, their lives together that's a more positive part? Well, I, I know that there's a lot of emphasis in a lot of the therapy that's done, that in order to heal yourself uh, from the kind of traumatic situation uh, that, that's been described, uh, you really need to, to come to understand the confusion of their feelings of, of love and, and dislike and fear and all of those sorts of things. And that, you know, that you need to come to some kind of form of reconciliation with the family. I've worked with many, many women and, and some men who are quite clear that uh, for them, healing does not include forgiveness or reconciliation. Mm. Uh, for them, they simply cannot do that and it's damaging to them they find it damaging mm -hmm. but there's an insistence in our society that we forgive but we have to remember that there are mitigating circumstances in many of these cases and apparently in this case this perpetrator apparently was severely sexually abused when he was a child mm -hmm. we know that this is an intergenerational issue and one of the one of the very complex matters that happens when it's interfamilial uh, abuse is that there are so many other factors in the family besides the sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. In some cases, there's real dependency 
emotional dependency. There may be other ways in which that family is supportive, and this is a big problem. Um, I've, I've heard it compared to the problem of gambling, people still loving all the other parts of a person, but their problem gambling mm -hmm. is creating huge familial problems. Uh, and seeing it as a bit of an addictive, a bit of a, a repeat behavior mm -hmm. thing that's hard to, to, to control. So I, I guess it really has to be fairly case-specific and very much based in how the person themselves recognizes the, the traumatic damage that's happened. If that person themselves wants uh, a reconciliation form of some sort, um, it would be inappropriate for a therapist to refuse to explore that possibility with that person. Um, I have to confess, I find it very difficult to imagine if I were in those circumstances that that would be a route that I would want to take. Mm -hmm. But I certainly have talked to many clients who have felt it necessary to try and rebuild that family, find it very frightening to think that their revelation of sexual abuse to themselves destroyed a family. They don't want to carry that guilt with them. Let me ask both of you a question, and I've, I've, I've posited this before, and let me remind you again, folks, the lines are open at 643-1290 or star-1290 on the Cantel if you'd care to join our conversation this morning or comment on what you're hearing. I've told this story before about some friends of mine many, many, many years ago when they were small children who were walking down the street and were flashed by a fella. And this raincoat, the whole, the whole nine yards, the classic thing. And they were at that point I think six and seven and five and you know in that area and went home laughing thought this was hysterical this you should have seen mummy you should have seen what this silly man did was it ever and the parents freaked absolutely freaked and at which parents did and still do in that situation and perhaps rightly so I'm not I'm not going to comment on that right yet but it became a traumatic and in many ways defining experience for these young people that uh, from something that had been just kind of the stupid behavior of this silly grown-up, it became this very serious, um, I don't want to say... Criminal life, matter. Yeah, but I don't say life-changing, but certainly life-affecting for these kids. And when I hear... And again, I don't want anybody to misunderstand me that I'm defending this guy at all. But one wonders how much of the reconciliation or how much of the recovery from this kind of... Uh, experience, how much of that is hampered by society's reaction, like those parents, that, that okay, it's... it's you're, you're, you're actually hitting on another paradox, which is actually the next one I was going to okay. bring up. You know, initially you asked, look at the difference between how we abhor this crime and the kind of punishment we give it. Well, society has that same paradoxical kind of view towards the victim and the perpetrator. Sometimes the victim is almost seems as repugnant as the perpetrator to a lot of people or at least the act that they were engaged in is repugnant to people so they immediately associate that person with that act mm -hmm. and sorry I don't want to have to deal with you and, and, and I don't know how to answer that properly it's um, you can understand the repugnance but at the same time I think society's a lot less forgiving than perhaps we'd like to pretend we are and that's of maybe that has a lot to do with the anger that of course is exacerbated by what happens when you go through uh, a court process um, we we have to remember that for the victim of crime to have
have to go through the police investigation, the preliminary trial, the trial, uh, revealing not just once but many times what happened to them, attempting to come up with dates and times in a retrospective crime like this, uh, trying to fix that in time when very often uh, time is one of the issues that's really affected by this kind of trauma. Um, and, and the efforts uh, in an adversarial legal system, which is what we have, where the defense is, the defense has the job of defending the person who is accused, and that usually means attacking the credibility of the witness, who in this case is also the victim. We're very fortunate in, in London. We have a lot of research, valuable research, that's been done at the London Family Court Clinic about child victim witnesses and what happens to them and what the effect of that is. And uh, we know that uh, a re-traumatization often happens for youngsters as they go through this process. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, we also know that if that process doesn't go forward and there isn't some sense on the part of young people who've been victimized, that someone cares, that the society cares, that there are processes put in place to actually bring the person to, to justice, then they also feel abandoned. So it's a, it's a very difficult kind of a situation. And in many cases, I mean, if there is a real effort on the part of both the victim and the perpetrator to try and look at some win-win situation, you find yourself not having to go through a trial, the perpetrator admitting guilt and, mm -hmm. and accepting punishment, accepting the, the, uh, uh, the kind of, of uh, sanctions that the, that the court and society would put on him, and in some cases on her. Well, wouldn't the prerequisite to that, though, be that the only time you should be in a court is if the perpetrator was denying that he was guilty. And you're surely not suggesting to take away his right to, to, to self-defense. No, no, absolutely um, not. But in many cases... Um, they'll fess up. They, well, in, in many cases, they will, if disclosure shows that the proof is high enough. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things... You mm -hmm. talked about denial on the part of other family members. Can they avoid the court system, members. then? Can, can they just bypass it and, and seek some other kind of... Uh, no, this is they not can't. one of the crimes that can can okay. can avoid court. That was a real worry for people, and indeed there was a conditional sentence proposed in this in in this court mm -hmm. case. Yeah. Um, and uh, thankfully, uh, that uh, the, the 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 sentencing in this case really took into account uh, that it wasn't appropriate to have a conditional sentence where where someone was in the community. Um, on the other hand, the the, uh, the judge in this case obviously also looked at the mitigating circumstances of the previous abuse of the perpetrator uh, had had uh, experienced. So, you that's that's the job of a judge, frankly, to try and balance out between when a prosecutor asks for five years federal penitentiary, the uh, defense is asking for two years conditional uh, sentencing. The judge obviously came down the middle and and tried to satisfy both needs both the mercy need of the justice system, but also the uh, the punitive nature of it. We're going to pause for a moment. This is the 100th edition of Left, Right, and Center on 1290 CJBK. Marion Boyd and Bob Metz with me. The lines are open if you have something you'd like to add to the discussion or perhaps a question for one of our guests. 643-1290. Star 1290 is the Cantel cellular number, and we are live on the Internet. Jay Chapman at iMessaging.net. This is 1290 CJBK. 
Joining me this morning on Left, Right and Center, Marion Boyd and Bob Metz, and we're talking this morning about uh, the issue of uh, inappropriate sexual behavior within families, let's put it that way, um, with reference to this case that was uh, in the paper this morning about the gentleman sentenced to three years for ten years of uh, sexual relations with his daughter from the time she was six years old. The... Uh, <sighs> When we look at this, Marion, you alluded to it a few minutes ago. You talked about our adversarial system and so on, and that it, 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 it does create some problems for people. I, I, I think most of us, and I'm going to use the phrase that I like to use because you can't define it, but I, I hope most people know what I mean by it, and that is people of goodwill. I think most people of goodwill in our society want to see full protection afforded to anyone who's been victimized in this way. At the same time, they want to see full protection against... False, false accusations. accusations. <laughs> well, I was trying to think whether there was a better way to put it, but yes, false accusations. I don't know what the numbers are, and I don't suppose anybody really knows what the numbers are of false accusations versus the real ones. But th this is where the rubber hits the road all too often in this kind of an issue is, yes, we want to make it as easy as possible for the victim to, to testify, for example, to carry this case forward, but we can't do that at the expense of the right of the accused to, to mount, uh, mount a, you know, a, a defense a, a against these charges. Now, Marion, you've, you've been in the trenches in this. Mm -hmm. Do you have any insights into any way we could make the system work better to better facilitate protection for both of those people? Well, I certainly think that we need to uh, ensure that in the, in the whole process we have good investigations investigations that really uh, provide for the court um, a, a very thorough um, look at, at what evidence is available and that there is full disclosure to the, to the uh, uh, accused and, and counsel. Um, it's really very important that as we go through the process, since the whole, the whole process is, is geared to ensuring that the rights of an individual to respect of the safety and security of their body is 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 part of of, of what we're trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. That that we don't we don't flip over on the other side and not respect those rights for an accused person. It's very confusing in many of these cases because victims of sexual assault, as I as I said, often confuse times. They confuse uh, situations because they very often have been very small at the time that mm -hmm. something happened their perception of what a room looked like or where something occurred may be quite different from what the physical evidence shows it would have been and mm -hmm. that casts you know some real doubt on their credibility um, these are very hard cases to prove because of that confusion on the part of the the person and these kinds of traumatic events do create uh, very serious uh, mental and emotional health issues for, for victims. They may have been unstable in other situations. They may have made other accusations that were shown not to be true. It's not an unusual thing for a sexual assault victim to try and, and, and put the blame for their sexual assault on somebody who's not as close as the family member sure, because yeah. they want to protect their... because yeah. they still... Love is still... A basic factor here. Mm -hmm. So all of those things make it very, very important for the court process, the investigation process, the whole prosecutorial pa uh, process to, uh, to be as thorough as it possibly can.
And, and the problem with it is that that often comes down to the credibility of the witness. Um, a defense lawyer is, uh, on, if they're going to defend uh, their, their client, and the client is denying that they have done something, they are going to have to uh, point out every inconsistency in the testimony of mm -hmm. the uh, the person who claims to be a victim, and uh, the court is is to rule whether it's a jury or a judge alone uh, that uh, they, beyond a reasonable doubt this person is guilty of of the crime, and in these cases because of the the conflicting kind of testimony that happens, the issue of reasonable doubt, which is a very very high threshold mm -hmm. for conviction and should be. Mm -hmm. Um, sometimes is not met, even though everyone in the case may may feel that that certainly something happened and so on. They have not been able to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. We're going to uh, go to the phones now. Six four three twelve ninety is the telephone number. Star twelve ninety on the Cantel if you'd like to join the discussion. And we're uh, live on the internet too. And we've got a message waiting here, which I'll read in a moment or two. Jay Chapman at imessaging.net. Mel joins us. Good morning, Mel. Uh, good morning, uh, Jim. Good morning to your guests. Uh, I have personal uh, uh, involvement in something that wasn't family, it was the other way. Uh, but I don't think people realize the trauma mm -hmm. that, that, quote, the, uh, the accuser has to go through, mm -hmm. the victim. Um, this person I know had to go through a pretrial. Anybody subpoenaed to the pretrial when this person testified wasn't allowed in the courtroom mm -hmm. during the testimony. Mm -hmm. Now, if, and because of a few factors, it never went beyond pretrial. But then, if there is enough ev evidence at the pretrial, then it goes to trial. So this victim has to go through all this stuff again. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I think, I know what I'd like to do to the, the father, mm -hmm. but everybody's been saying, well, what about the mother? What, what about the daughter? Well, it, it's the trauma involved. Mm-hmm. I know personally this, this uh, it was a young lady, and I know personally this young lady didn't want to tell anybody. Yeah, yeah which is often the case. Often the case, mm -hmm. and, and it, it, it's so horrendous. You don't know what it is to say, advise the young girl to go through with it, continue with it. You don't know what to do. All you can do is support them, and hopefully they can do it the right way. But it, I know this one young girl had to go through a pretrial, and that was horrendous. It wasn't all-day deal from 9 yeah. o'clock in the morning until 5 o'clock at night. What's the alternative, though, Mel? And that's the great problem, <clears throat> isn't it? The, the, uh, this finding an alternative that also protects the rights of the accused. Because, oh, yeah. as we know, an accuser does not necessarily mean an accused is guilty. Uh, this, this is true. This is true. But well, no, there is like no but. No, Mel, there's no but. That's the problem. Yeah. That is the problem. How do we protect the rights of both sides equally? The system we have now on paper affords that protection, but the price it exacts from the accuser is 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 tremendous. By the same token, the price exacted from an accused, if due process is not followed, is equally tremendous and terrible. Well, I, I know I know in this case I'm talking about Jim that that the young lady was so confused while on the stand and being questioned by yeah. the defense attorney, mm -hmm. the judge had to step in and say, "Cool it." Yeah. Now. Which, by the way, a lot of people don't realize, judges do have not only the ability to do that, but in fact oh, have yeah. a responsibility to do that. Uh, it, 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 I, the reason the case didn't get out of pretrial 
was because of this young woman mixed up a couple of facts yeah. in, in, in dating it and mm -hmm. timing it and things like this. Yeah. Um, but again, Mel, if you were on, on the other side of that or any other legal case, would you, you know, wouldn't you want them to have to prove their case and be accurate oh, with the information? Oh, yeah. it's, it's the great dichotomy and it's the great problem with it. Mel, I have to leave it there, but okay. I thank you for your call, sir. Okay. Uh, I'm going to read this email and then we'll pause for some messages come back. This is from Jim. He said, I'd like to throw a fly in the ointment. In light of where we were 30 to 40 years ago and where we are today, who's to say that this final taboo in regards to sexuality will not soon be crossed and allowed in light of the recent charter rulings pertaining to rights, freedoms, etc., especially in light of the relativistic society in which we live? What lawyer will not argue that the rights of the 15 or 16-year-old or maybe even younger should be respected under the charter, etc., etc.? Your thoughts appreciated. We'll give... Uh, our guests the opportunity to cogitate over that, and we'll be back to talk about it right after this. This is 1290 CJBK. This is Left, Right, and Center, the 100th edition, uh, Brother Metz informs us today. He keeps track of this sort of thing. Yeah. Bob Metz and Marion Boyd with me in the studio. Now, before we broke, uh, we had I read an email here from Jim, and I'll just synopsize it again. J Jim was wondering, are we perhaps moving towards the uh, knocking down of this, what he refers to as a final taboo in regards to sexuality in light of recent charter rulings and so on? Um, what lawyer might not argue that the rights of a 15 or 16 year old or maybe even younger should be respected? And I made the point to my guests off the air that uh, I believe there is a movement underway to reduce the, uh, the age of consent to, to, to 12. What happens then if you've got a, you know, a 12 year old or a 13 year old uh, daughter uh, who believes that this relationship with her father is a very positive thing and so on and finds some lawyer and they get turned in, somebody blows a whistle on them and finds a lawyer to defend her. W what happens then? Marion, you made the point that Society still has the right to draft laws to restrict behaviors that we deem inappropriate, yes. but section one of the the charter is the is the main clause that that indicates that uh, indeed governments are there to make laws for the protection of the of the citizens of the of the country. Wouldn't you have to prove in that case? And none of us are lawyers, but wouldn't somebody have to prove that that this child was not being afforded? appropriate protection that might be a tough case you know, to make it's funny you, when you use the word protection you were, you were talking about full protection of the law to both the defense and the victim yeah. it, it seems to me that this process we have that we call protection whenever I hear that word protection I, I think oh man another way of traumatizing people because it, whenever we, we we almost can't help but traumatize them and put them through a traumatizing process when we want to protect anybody there because in order to take advantage of that protection, you have to put yourself through that. You have to make the evidence public. You have mm -hmm. to go through all those things that a lot of people are avoiding, which I think is why so much of this goes unreported. You know, the victim might see themselves as a victim a second time mm -hmm. going through the system. And, and the system is also set up to punish. It's, it's a punishment-oriented system so that nobody gets full satisfaction out of it. I know one time I was assaulted and, we, and I was the victim in that case and we went through a whole day's court and all the mess and it was a $50 fine at the end of the day. Uh, that wasn't worth anybody's time in the courtroom, not the police officer, not mine, not the, not the perpetrator. You know, I, I would have said, forget about it, but, but, but the but, police laid the charges, you know. But even going through the process, we know, uh, we know from some of the research that's been done, in fact, changes the behavior. People think they aren't being held be accountable, but when the process holds them accountable and everything that they've done is out there in open court, there are many, many people who actually say, wow, 
I, I didn't really think people thought this was a bad thing to do, but obviously they do, and I never want to go through but this again. But there are also people who say, I smacked that smart Alex. Yeah, I went to court. I got a $50 fine. Ho, ho, ho. But I gave him a good shot. Yes, there are some incorrigible people. There's no question. But are, are they incorrigible? Or would, in Bob's case, would that have made more difference if he'd got a $5,000 fine? Uh, not if he couldn't pay it. Doesn't rehabilitation and prevention sort of um, imply that we have to educate, we have to understand ourselves why these things are wrong, where the issues of consent are. Uh, I don't know what's in the mind of a perpetrator. You never know what kind of societal background they came from, whether they were a victim themselves, whether they regard children as property. We talked about animals as property mm -hmm. last week. Maybe they think kids are property. And it wasn't so long ago when that was the case, practically. Well, if you look so, at the Prescott case, which was a horrible case of interfamilial uh, abuse of children, very organized, very ritualized, and so on, uh, that was certainly the case in that case. They had absolutely no concept that there was anything wrong with this, yep. that the children were there for their enjoyment. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, as time progresses and we learn and we, and we acquire knowledge, both about human behavior, about the nature of how we behave, you know, as sexual beings, um, our, our relativistic uh, society, as Jim would call it, is actually, I think, in, in the official sense, moving in a proper direction because we're recognizing that uh, children of 12 years old cannot consent. I would abhor it if that became law. That, uh, but what's the difference between 12 the, and 14? The, there's, well, not, there's not much maturity difference between 12 and 14. No, I, I got to actually, admit that every, I mean, picking 18 or 16, it, I mean, they're all arbitrary. It's like there level. actually is, but. In those yeah. two years? Oh, yeah. yeah. But, but yes, our, our, uh, our rate of growth is much more measurable and definable in the early years until we get to the late teens. Then we start hitting those adult okay. behaviors and characteristics. But even then, you don't have full experiences. Dr. Laura will tell you you shouldn't be getting married when you're 18 to 20 even, mm -hmm. you know. So, because you're going to change a lot, and that's guaranteed in your, in your 30s and yeah. 40s and as you go on. So, Especially now that we live until our 90s. It's a very right. long period and of time. Imagine when life is even expanded further. Mm -hmm. uh, our standards will, will surely change, but it still doesn't address the problem of what to do with that part of society that hasn't moved along with the rest of us, um, that operates perhaps on totally different values, and some people who we might be punishing may not recognize that what they're doing is even wrong. We're, not, we're certainly not accomplishing anything by that. Um, well, and there's a school I mean, of thought that a, says that that's exactly what we're doing to a lot of the people we're, that we're incarcerating, well, yes, that they don't have the same. Their world is not our world. They well, do not see it. And there's nothing in prison that encourages them to join our world yeah, exactly. either. Uh, precisely. And, and no one's sitting them down and saying, look, at this, these are what individual rights are. This is what they're based on. You know, you have, people yeah. have to understand in some ways the society in a more philosophic sense of, yeah. of what society is and the way relationships should be. Uh, and I think that's adequately or, or visibly lacking rather in, in, in perpetrators like this. There's something missing. So often uh, we blame it on, on a lack of empathy when you see a, a perpetrator uh, not empathizing with a victim or something, but often I think it's, it's a philosophical moral thing. The person is operating on the wrong premise. Well, I had an experience a number of years ago when we were playing uh, in Halifax and uh, setting up in the afternoon and there was a conversation going on between two of the guys that worked there, two bouncers that worked there. And, uh, you know, they were, they were sitting sort of at the edge of the stage there while we were doing it, so I wasn't I don't think I was eavesdropping. Was You could not hear what they were saying. And they were discussing their domestic relationships and how they kept their women in line. And, 
it was fascinating to me because I had never heard. So, I mean, I've read about. I've never heard. Scary though, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Well, it was. It, it, it was, but it was beyond scary because these guys. How do I put this? They were not frightening because they, the context in, well, they were frightening, but in the context of which they were talking, they were not being macho, at least I didn't get that sense. They weren't tra- changing you know stories. You you're talking about? I think you're talking about class. When, when, usually when I use the word class, that's the kind of behavior I'm talking about, the distinction between people who might talk like that and people who would never talk like that. But, like but, it's but, got nothing to do with money or income. Well, yeah, for sure, but, I'll grant you that. But the thing to me that was kind of chilling about it was that, they really, neither one of them got it, I'm sure. And if, if I had gone over, which I didn't, and said, you know, excuse me, but I'd like to be part of this discussion, and, and what do you think of this? I, there's no doubt in my mind that they would have looked, like, looked at me like I was from Mars. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I remember the one guy said very, very, uh, very clearly, he said, you ever kick her? He says, yeah, only if I can't punch her. And, so, and just that plainly, matter just of fact, that matter-of-factly, yep, yep, sure, yep, that's just the way it the, is. Yeah. That's, that's absolutely the case. And it does have something to do with lack of empathy. It also has to do with looking, regarding somebody as, as property, as less than yourself, as, as, as not having any rights. So it really does come back, Robert, I, I have to mm-hmm. agree with you, to uh, a lack of respect for the individual rights of, of, the, of, of one another. Would and you say it also applies on the other half of the equation with the woman who's sitting there allowing herself to be punched and kicked because you know you can take the same situation that we started off here with the, the man molesting his daughter what if that had not been a child but an adult who put up with a lot of uh, uh, ba- abuse let's just call it abuse mm-hmm. um, but would not move for the same reasons that we're saying the kid is being influenced because of emotional dependence because of economic dependence or whatever other things are going on in their mind see even that age that we pick of 18 we arbitrarily say the person in the same state of mind before 18 and, and after 18 is a different person because after 18 we assume they're consenting. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the only time I can really explicitly but, say that two people can hit each other under consent is, is in a boxing or wrestling arena. Mm-hmm. That's about it. <laughs> well, you know. we, we go through that, though, all the time. I mean, when someone is sexually assaulted, the claim of the accused is always that the person agreed to it. I mean, you know, you hear that again and again and yeah. again. Um, and and it's really only in the last 25 years that the law and the society has respected the right of a married woman to say no to sex with her partner. I mean, mm-hmm. the, that law didn't change until 1985. Mm-hmm. Uh, prior to that, there was no way you could claim sexual assault by a by yeah, a partner. It was ridiculous. Uh, yeah. Which was absolutely ridiculous. Um, our attitudes are changing. We are beginning to respect the rights of women. On in, in a different level. But how do we treat the women who do consent, even after they've been given the legal right to say no? Okay, let me let me. Uh, I want to well, well, interject just for a second. Role yeah, I want to I want to set a scenario here, if I may. And and I know we're on very touchy ground here. We're not trying to offend anybody, but I think that you can. I've had this discussion with a number of times with different people. You can certainly make the case that in a in a given situation, that a woman or a man suffering abuse from a spouse may feel in that situation that they are at risk and that they have no choice but to acquiesce. But the dynamic changes somewhat when they do then have the opportunity to leave or to phone the police or whatever after the immediate threat has passed. Well, over a 10-year period, you'd well, think there'd yeah, be yeah. one opportunity. But, but, you, 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 but neither, there, neither of you are taking into account the effect of the traumatization over time.
fact of what, what essentially often accompanies it, which is complete brainwashing about your own self-worth. But if we're going to, and, and, and again, please don't misunderstand me, Marion, I'm not attacking these women at all, but if we're going to make that allowance for the woman in the situation, is it, should we make more allowance for the inability of the man to change his behavior in the same sense if the woman is is traumatized and is is it's a symbiotic relation well, that, that's I, i'm not clear on this i've never been and, entirely and, and clear i think on it. i i think you make a very good point i don't ever agree with just punishing someone who has had this behavior mm -hmm. there has to be an effort to try and help them to understand why we as a society say what they have done is wrong it's very difficult sometimes. The whole area of sexual assault is the most difficult. We know that uh, effective treatments to make people change their behavior, to, to stop some of the compulsivity of the, of the behavior, doesn't seem to work. Experts like Dr. Bill Marshall have been working in this field at Kingston for years and years and years and basically says, I'm, you know, I, I've spent my career trying to find therapy methods that will deal with this and help people to change their behavior, and I'm, I'm, I'm very unsuccessful because mm -hmm. basically this is a very ingrained thing. But yes, we must try. It's not enough to just punish. We have to try, but I think we should be trying right from, from birth to, to help people to, first of all, respect each other, to learn how to use their words, not their fists, mm -hmm. when they have a disagreement, to understand that all of us get angry and the way you handle that anger is not to pound somebody out but to try and really look at what's behind your anger and what feelings are there i mean we can teach children this we can teach children that violence is not the way to solve problems that coercion is not the way to get sexual satisfaction we have to do it explicitly we have to do it very early and keep reinforcing that because all of our media all of the the, uh, the, the things that we see on television, our, 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 our uh, uh, movies and so on, uh, mitigate against that. The, the conjunction of violence and coercion with sexuality is very pervasive, not just in pornography, but in, in many of the things that we see. And I would say that we cannot underestimate the lobbying power of those who would like to loosen the age of, of, of uh, consent, uh, who, uh, who in, in some cases are on very strong uh, crusades to try and in, ensure that there is no age of protection and, and, and who use the language of, of rights, uh, subvert it, I would say, Robert, rather than, than use it mm -hmm. as you use it, but subvert it to try and say that this is okay. Well, and there are, NAMBLA is one organization you're familiar with, and, th and there are others, and they're... they're uh, <laughs> Their contention is that we interfere with the rights of children to fully enjoy their sexuality by imposing these See, legal impediments. You're subverting the term rights when you're right. applying it to a being that cannot possess it. This is the same argument I made about animals last mm -hmm. week. Animals cannot possess rights, so you diminish people by saying that animals are the same as they are. And, and children, we, we have to understand just by the nature of children, it comes back to what, what the thing is. It's a child, mm -hmm. you know? And it's not an object that's to be treated like property, or it's not a full, full being with total human rights and, and all the privileges that society offers, from driving a car to being to, mm -hmm. to being legally recognized as a consenting particip uh, participant in society. Whether that means in a sexual relationship, in marriage, or signing contracts for a mortgage. Uh, uh, these things all go sort of hand in hand. And I know that 18 is a rather arbitrary 
age for a lot of things because some people mature quicker than others and others slower, but it's, it is the average, very observable age that most people reach that point. Let me wrap up, if we can, by coming back to today. What happened uh, to, the, to the case today? The, the guy gets three years in jail. It looks as though his family may have to go on welfare. That's what they, that was one of the arguments against putting him in jail. The judge said, no, it's, it's beyond that. We have a daughter here who had a baby at 17, uh, doesn't know whether it's her father's or her boyfriend's. One would suspect she is troubled. We have a mother who denies she knew anything about it. Daughter said she did. Mother was having affairs while all this was going on anyway. Um, has anything productive at all come out of this, Marion, in your estimation, given what we know about it? I, mean, I don't know. I don't know what therapy any members of the family are having. I would say to you that this is a very, very confused family, obviously very, I mean, we use the term dysfunctional mm. to describe all sorts of things, but this is obviously a, a highly dysfunctional family. I would hope that everybody involved in this would be getting some, some treatment by people who are expert in dealing with the traumas that happen on all sides in this. Um, I don't know whether that will make a difference, whether they will be able to heal. Um, there certainly are very effective therapies, and I, I hope they can access them. The problem is, of course, if you're poor, it's very hard to get therapy. It's hard to get therapy if you're not poor. That's true, especially appropriate therapy. Mm -hmm. Robert, uh, last word to you today. Um, I, I don't think we're ever going to find a satisfactory answer as to what punishment fits the crime, because I think that's the wrong question. Um, I, I think that basically, we're, we, we've at least this behavior has stopped for the time being, if you're looking for something positive. Um, a message has been sent again that this is unacceptable. Um, and I think that as we you know, go through time, we'll find that these standards evolve themselves through the courts, some for the better, some for the worse, and that we'll be here talking about these, these subjects at Left, Right, and Center 200. <laughs> well, I'll look forward to that, if not the topic, certainly the Left, Right, and Center 200. Marion and Bob, thank you so much for being Thanks, here. Jeff. And uh, congratulations to all of us for the 100th anniversary of this particular program. According to our research we did during August, this is a very popular part of the show, and uh, we're going to keep on bringing it to you as long as you want to listen. On tomorrow's Talk of the Town, Martin Lockley has an, weighs in again with another argument on the evolution versus creation science. Um, we take a look at the story of Tim Horton Donuts, what's going on there? Diana Krall, one of the big musical success stories of the latter part of this decade and poised for world success. We're going to find out more about her. Um, the fellows behind McLean's Canada's Century book, which is a wonderful...